Do you like correcting error? Few people would say that they like correcting. But perhaps there are some very few people who actually like it, doing so. But few people actually like correcting error, and、uh, there are even fewer that like to be corrected. Amen to that. Let's confess it. That's, that's, this is not a, a, an, amen, an amen of being proud of it, but an amen of being recognizing that it, this is part of who we are. There are situations in which people may not want to acknowledge an error, or when they fail, it's、uh, or, or they 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 might feel like it's not important to bring it up、uh, to correct the situation. It's not worth correcting. Particular errors, and yet there are times when leaving error uncorrected has serious consequences.、Uh, a member in our congregation reminded me this week, or informed me this week, that、uh, he received a letter from、uh, Social Security telling him, informing him that one of his family members had died, and、uh, the Social Security services expressed their condolences for the death of this family member. Even though this family member was alive and well, apparently someone made a mistake, and、uh, and it was important to get that fixed, to get that error resolved. And apparently it was not that easy to track down which office in Social Security Services actually has the authority to determine that a particular person is no longer dead. Quite some trouble to go through. Error can creep up in our lives, sometimes unintentionally. Sometimes it's not our fault. Sometimes it's it may not feel like a big deal. Other times it may be a big deal, even though we may not feel it's a big deal. Well, fair friends, error can creep up in the life of a church as well,、uh, intentionally or unintentionally.、Uh, it always has when it when it happens in the life of the church. It always has negative consequences. The life of the ch- local church can be messy. It can be disordered. We know from the book of Titus, as we started several weeks ago working through this letter, that the life of the churches on the island of Crete、uh, was disordered. But what what caused that disorder?、Um, we know that Paul asked Timoth- uh, Titus to stay in Crete to. To put what remained into order, but what caused that disorder, friends? It, it was the presence of error in the church. Believers were falling in the snares of distorted truths, and because of that, they were lacking godliness. And these distorted truths were the major cause of disorder in the life of the church. In the passage we will look at today, we see how the Apostle Paul handled the presence of error among believers. His instruction to Titus、um, are an example and a warning for us as well. They also equip us what to do when we see error, and Paul also instructs us. He tells us why correcting error is beneficial. So let's、uh, open Scripture to the Book of Titus. We'll be looking at chapter one,、uh, verses ten through sixteen.、Um, Titus chapter one, 
verse 10 through 16. If you do not bring a Bible with you, you are encouraged. We, you're welcome to grab the Bible provided in the chair in front of you. It looks like this, the Black Bible. It's on page number 996. I'm sorry, 998. And um, we'd love for, for you to have this Bible if you don't own one. And for now, let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts for, for the hearing of God's Word. Titus 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of His word for our hearts? Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is like a double-edged sword. It's open to penetrate our hearts and our minds the depths of our core. Oh, Father, we pray that this word will do the same for us today. We pray that we would hear your word for our hearts. We pray that you would allow us, enable our hearts to hear openly and clearly. And give us, O oh Lord, willingness to receive it. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor and through the power of your Holy Spirit that is among us. Amen. What should we do when we see error creeping up in the life of the church? But let's be honest, sometimes it feels like it's easier not to do anything about it. Sometimes it feels that correcting error or exposing error might bring more trouble to the life of the church. And reality is, that's very possible especially if error has been going under the radar for a long while in a particular congregation uh, where members have, have developed roots in a particular uh, erroneous teaching, trying to uproot that, trying to expose that, trying to deal with that, can cause a lot of mess in the life of a church. So sometimes it might feel like it's, uh, it's easier just to leave it alone. Others might feel like addressing error in the life of the congregation would, uh, would get, get us on the wrong track. That we should be all about just proclaiming Jesus and helping people know Jesus and not worry about this correcting error stuff. Some people feel like as long as we just get people to decide for Jesus, that's what it's all about. Well, friends, now it's true that we should be about preaching Jesus. It's, we, should be us, we should be about seeking the lost. Uh, but evangelism 
uh, versus correcting error in the church should never be a, one of, a matter of, of choosing between one or the other. We need to do both. Yet oftentimes, sometimes evangelism is put as if it's a better alternative than, than messing with the reality that, uh, uh, that we need to deal with error. So uh, when we look at, at the book of, of Titus and the situation going on with the believers in, on the island of Crete, uh, these, these Christians, these churches were, were fairly new churches. We don't know exactly how long. It has been since they've been planted, uh, but it can't be more than 20 years. Uh, it, that was probably the, the longest they would have been planted, uh, depending on how we understand when this letter was written. Uh, and yet it's interesting that, that Paul writes this letter to encourage Titus to deal with the reality that error is pretty widely happening among these believers, and this was an important matter. So as we look at this theme of correcting error, I'd like for us to prepare our minds to consider four points in this process that we see from the, from, the, from the Apostle Paul encouraging Titus how to deal with the reality that error can be a part of the life of Christians, the life of churches. First of all, we see that Paul challenges Titus and challenges us to consider to expose those who teach error expose those who teach error. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, interesting here that he actually says, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, there's some specifics about the error that was going on among these Christians in Crete that may not be the same for us today. But yet, nevertheless, it's important for us to know something about this this error. Uh, later in verse 14, uh, we are told that Christians in Crete were tempted to devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. These descriptions show us that uh, the nature of the error that Paul exposed had a Jewish flavor to it. Now, this does not mean that somehow uh, Paul is against the Old Testament. Uh, claiming that somehow the Old Testament is, is wrong or obsolete. Rather, even among Jewish people, there arose distortions of the truth of God and their leaders became more interested in myths, in speculations, in explanations that were not from God's Word. And they promoted commands made by men rather than the, com than the commands given by God. Uh, just an illustration uh, Jesus had to confront this problem when he was around, when he uh, spoke to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah the prophet say uh, of you hypocrites, uh, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You see how Jesus had to confront the error that crept in even while during his time. And, and Jesus points back that this error was not just around Jesus' time. He went back all the way to Isaiah. And if we go to Isaiah to the read. 
the book of Isaiah, we realize there's a lot of error happening that the prophet confronts in his own time against the people of God in the Old Testament. This, this, this tendency to, to hold on to the tradition of men and put, a, put aside the Word of God um, continued to be, to be growing even during the time of Paul. Paul had to address various errors uh, to the church in Colossae and to the church in Ephesus. Uh, in Timothy, Paul, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, This is why I urge you to stay in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Well, that was a pastoral charge that Paul gave to Timothy. Friends, from the early on, we see that the life of the churches in the very first century uh, was threatened by the distortion of the truth of God. Such distortions may have promoted religion. It may have promoted people who bought into it and, and, and a growing following of, of crowds who are following such false teaching. Friends, we should not be surprised that error, teaching error, can produce a following. In Crete, in particular, we are given a very sad picture. Look at what it says in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Notice the character of those who promoted the error. There's a few descriptions. Just like Paul used a few descriptions for those who, must, who can be elders, now Paul gives a few descriptions of those who promote error. The first description is they're insubordinate. They're insubordinate. This word can be translated as independent, refusing any authority over one over yourself. A free-spirited person to whom no one can say anything. A person who has no concept of submitting to authority. Friends, this characteristic is not a positive characteristic. By the way, the same word is used, was used earlier in Titus 1.6 where Paul describes the children of a prospective elder that they should not be or cannot be accused of insubordination. Otherwise, the person could not be considered for eldering or pastoring. Now, this negative description is applied to people who promote error. In other words, the people who contradict the truth have a deeper problem than their error. It's not simply that they buy into a, a wrong truth or a wrong uh, claim. It's that they actually, deep down, they might refuse to submit to God's truth. It's a matter of refusal, not just a matter of ignorance. These people also are described as being empty talkers. They were able to get an audience, they were able to get a following. Uh, people were listening to them. They had influence over people. But, but by the way, how do we know that? Because in verse 11, we are told that they were upsetting whole families. It became a pretty significant issue among the Christians on, on the island of Crete. So that means that these false teachers uh, were able to get an audience, to get influence. Even though they were pleasant and attractive and impactful in what they taught, nevertheless, God's assessment of them is that 
they were empty talkers, meaning whatever they said had no power. No power of God. No power to, real, to bring real change in our lives. How often we can be lured by, by words that sound smooth, that sound pleasant, and yet the power of God is not in them. They're empty words, even though they sound good. They sound encouraging. The next description of these men is that they were deceivers. Uh, because their teaching was not the truth of God, because they were actually trying to teach uh, in a way that would dissuade people from the truth of God, they were deceiving people, leading people astray. And then another, conver- another description in verse 11 is that they were teaching for shameful gain. This is exactly opposite of, of what Paul required of elders to, to be. Elders of the local church should not be greedy for gain. But these promoters of error, they were greedy for gain. They were ready. They wanted to teach their error so they could get more followers, so they could be more supported, perhaps. They were motivated to teach their error because of their love for gain. Sadly, Paul says that such people in this category, with this description, were many. Not a few. He says, for there are many who are this way. My friends, how would you feel if you were a member of First Baptist Church of Crete? You can laugh. How would you, how, how would you felt if you, and, and you, if you hear this letter? There are many around us. There are many in our society. There are many who are this way, insubordinate, empty talkers, uh, deceivers, teaching for shameful gain. Friends, it's amazing that Paul exposes the people who promote error and does it so directly. He helps us see that beneath their error, there are other issues, insubordination, emptiness, wrong motivations. So the first thing that Paul does is he exposes those who teach error. But it's not enough just to expose those who teach error. Paul goes on a step further and he says, act to stop the error from spreading. Act to stop the error from spreading. How do you, what do you do? What are you supposed to do to act to make this error stop? Well, there's two imperative verbs in this passage that Paul gives Titus to deal with this error that was spreading. The first one is in verse 11. They must be silenced, meaning these teachers who are promoting error. Erroneous teaching must be exposed and stopped. It's not enough simply to expose it. It must be stopped. But who is responsible to stop erroneous teaching in the life of a church? Who is responsible to do that? Well, on one side, friends, on one side, all Christians have the responsibility to protect the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word as it is revealed in the scriptures. All Christians have this responsibility. Let me give you some examples why I say that. In the, in the churches of Galatia, where, where they were swayed away uh, from the truth of the gospel, Paul wrote to them a, a letter to, the, to all believers, to all the churches, to expose them of this error and to ask them to stop it and to return from it. When the church in Corinth was, um, 
was swayed to go off the path of godliness, Paul corrected the entire church and made all of them responsible to return to the truth. That's why he wrote two long letters uh, to all of them. And he rebuked all of them. And he asked all of them to act. Actually, most of the letters of the New Testament are written to entire churches. Because from a human standpoint, all Christians have this responsibility to guard and protect the, the truth of God in the life of the church. But it's because of that, this congregate, because of this, I, we would call congregational responsibility, church-wide responsibility to protect the truth of the gospel, one of the vows of membership in our congregation for our members is this. We will defend and maintain an evangelical gospel ministry in this church. Notice it says, not only will we maintain, we will defend it. That means if you're a member of this congregation, you are entrusted with a ministry of defending the faithfulness of the gospel in our congregation. This means that when any of us detect error among us, you should address it. We should address it. And we should be vigilant and examine to be sure that what is taught among us is in accordance with Scripture. And that teaching can come either from this pulpit or in a, in a Sunday school class or in a home group or a one-on-one -on -one discipling, that we would be vigilant, all of us, for the truth of God's Word. And yet, there is another level. So on one level, all of us are responsible to protect this, to protect against error. And yet, there is another level of responsibility uh, to protect against error that is given to the elders of the church. Notice in verse 9 how Paul connects verse 9 to verse 10. In verse 9, Paul speaks about the elders, how they should be, or an elder candidate. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Why must he be able to give instruction in sound doctrine? And why must he be able to rebuke those who contradict it? Why is this a requirement for elders? Notice, notice the connecting word for that starts in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. The reason why rebuking the elders must be able to rebuke is because it's their job to be doing this. So there's a level in which, even though the whole church is responsible to correct and, and protect truth, uh, there's another level in which elders must be the ones who are ready to do it. Paul's strategy to confront the error that was spreading in the churches of Crete was that Titus would establish more elders among them who would be able to be vigilant over these matters. Actually, in verse 11, Paul says that such error must be stopped by silencing the people who teach it. Friends, when someone shares a distorted truth, either in a small group or in a Sunday school class or even in a, in a, in a sermon, that teaching must be addressed. Now, we want to make sure we don't jump straight to silencing right away because there's a few things, a few steps we must do before we get to the at the step of silencing someone. First of all, we must, we, must, we must make sure we understand what was being said and we have not misunderstood. 
We want to do, do our due diligence to understand what the other person is actually saying. If what they are saying um, still is clearly doesn't, doesn't sound right with what Scripture says, we, we want to go and examine the Scripture. We want to point this person back to Scripture. We want to take him to God's Word and sort of work our way through it and, and understand the differences. And after a while, if we realize that this person is still a matter of error, not not just a, a matter of interpretation, but it's a matter of error. Um, and if this person is not willing to submit to Scripture and clearly refuses to submit to Scripture or doesn't care or would say, well, there's other truths besides Scripture that we must listen to, that we must consider, uh, so that Scripture is not the only standard for someone's beliefs. Well, in that case, uh, the situation does, does need to progress to the point of someone will continue to, to teach and promote that erroneous teaching, uh, they must be asked to stop. They must be asked not to do it anymore. If that can take the form of members feel free to come and speak to the, to the, to the spiritual leaders of the church to, to be sure that we're dealing with error here and uh, to see what do we need to do to make sure that the error doesn't continue to be promoted. Um, the leaders of the church can and should take the step of saying to that person or that group of people that unbiblical teaching will not be accepted in our church. Friends, you may say, well, does this really happen? Do people in the church, do, do church leaders do this? Do churches actually do this? Well, in, our, in the last two years, in our own congregation, I had to do that twice. I had to expose false teaching and simply tell with, with kindness say, that teaching will not be tolerated or accepted here. And if you're not willing to be persuaded by Scripture uh, about these matters, um, that you're, you're not welcomed to continue to promote that truth here. It is, we want to do that with diligence, making sure that it is indeed error and not just you know, small little differences, but it's, it's the area of true doctrine. Um, and when that happens, the responsibility of a church is to silence those to promote error. It's never fun to do it, friends. It's never fun to do it. We wish we did not have to do it. And I can give you examples of, of the situations when this has happened more specifically. If you're interested, feel free to talk to me. But the bottom line is that silencing those who promote error is one of the responsibilities of elders. But then there's something else. So silencing is, is one way to act. Another is to um, rebuke those who follow error. Rebuke those who follow error. Look at verse 12. Paul gives a quote from one of the religious gurus of Crete. Paul calls him a prophet, not because he was a prophet, not because, uh, because Paul considered him a prophet, but because most likely that's how he was considered by the Cretans. Uh, the quote is an indictment made by their own citizens. The indictment is, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. What do you do with that? And then, what do you do with the next phrase that Paul says, this testimony is true? Well, just to be clear, Paul is not the only one who says this. Uh, Cicero, years, years earlier, in his book, the famous book, The Republic, said this about the, the Cretans. Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. 
That's just to say that for some reason or another, we don't know why, but the culture of Crete, the society in Crete, had been so, um, has been so broken down that things that we would consider just moral rights or wrongs were actually, um, moral wrongs were actually considered good things as a whole society. Friends, this was an indictment on the whole nation. And Paul responds, yeah, this testimony is true. Now, friends, this does not mean that every Cretan was this way, but that their society was characterized by these norms. There were cultural norms that were accepted. But you know what's amazing about all this, actually? That despite this indictment on the whole culture and society of Crete, nevertheless, the grace of God rescued some of them. And churches were planted on the island of Crete. Even though it was a very difficult society, if you might say a very barbarian society in some ways, um, to, to be called, when someone was caught lying, uh, they would say, you're playing a Cretan on me. That's how bad things were. Well, friends, can you imagine the gospel arrived in Crete and, and the gospel bare, bore fruit in Crete and churches were being planted and, and Titus is now left in Crete to help the life of these churches to flourish and get back on track. Friends, only the gospel can change people, uh, even from such a bad culture. Now, can you imagine if you were assigned to go as a missionary to Crete? The reason, the reason for us to rejoice is God is not looking to save only people who are on the right side of the tracks, only people who are in the good neighborhoods, only people who are in good parts of town. God is looking to save people even from the society that has been so degenerated or, or, or broken down. The church can still have a witness there. Now, interestingly, the church or the churches in Crete did struggle with a particular weakness. They continued to reflect the cultural norms of society even in their church. These false teachers were proclaiming a Christian living that continued to emulate the sinful cultural norms of Crete. So Paul tells Titus in verse 13 to rebuke them. Very clearly, rebuke them. Now it's unclear if the rebuke was to be addressed to the false teachers who were promoting the teaching or to the following that these false teachers were getting around them. The, the Christians. It's, it's fairly clear that the false teachers in this passage are those who are not Christians. The way Paul describes them, both in, in verse uh, 10 and 11 and then in verses uh, 16, uh, makes it pretty clear that the false teachers are not Christians. So the part of rebuking in verse 13 is likely geared or addressed, targeted towards the Christians who were following for or falling for these wrong teachings. The distorted teaching was leaving these Christians to continue to live the same way as the society was living. So Paul says to Titus, rebuke them. But what's involved in rebuking? What's involved in rebuking? Look at verse 14. Not to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, the errors they faced may be different than the errors we might face today. But the principles of what to do remain the same. Not devote ourselves 
to those who teach falsely or to hearing the false teaching. Friends, false teaching may come through what people read in books. False teaching may come through what people hear on the internet or on TV by certain popular preachers or false teachers. Podcasts. Part of silencing the error in the church is to ask people not to feed on authors who promote a distorted truth. Um, I asked even our librarian, Gloria Hoover, to be sure that certain books by certain authors will not be in our library. And I'll tell you the two authors in particular that I told her recently that we should just not allow their voice to be in our, around our resources. And I so appreciate Gloria for being open to be sure that what we have in our library are books that actually promote the truth of God. And, and we help our members uh, by not having books that creep in error. Two, books, two authors in particular that I think you should stay away. Joyce Myers and T.D. Jakes. You'll see them in the airports when you travel all over. Uh, you see them in Barnes and Nobles all over. Just stay away. Uh, these are just some, two of many others. Uh, occasionally, I ask people, who are the names of people they listen to, either on the internet or on t or radio or podcast, just to get a sense of who are other teachers they listen to. Um, and uh, part, of, part of both either silencing or rebuking would be to ask certain people if they listen to things that are not right biblically, stop listening to them. Just stop listening. The rebuke also in, in Crete was to be given sharply. Yes, elders must be gentle when they teach the truth. They must be gentle even when they correct opponents. But there are times when elders must rebuke sharply. The same word of, of sharply, rebuking sharply, Paul used in 2 Corinthians 13, 10, where Paul says to them, For these things I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Paul assumes that he may have to deal with the Corinthian church in a severe way. Now, friends, I, I want to ask you, would you be open to be a member of a church where that severity of rebuke might have to be applied? No one likes to be rebuked. Yet it's necessary, and sometimes it's necessary to do it even sharply. Are you thinking that churches are places where rebuke should never happen? And if it does happen, you're, you're out of the door? If that's you, my friend, realize you'd be out of the door of, of many of the churches in the New Testament era that, to whom Paul wrote. Realize your own expectation of what should happen or could happen in the church. Thirdly, so act to stop. Uh, the error. Thirdly, embrace the purpose of rebuking. Why? Why is rebuking necessary? Embrace the purpose of rebuking. Look at verse 13. So that they may be sound in faith. This is why rebuking is necessary. So they may be sound in faith. The verb for being sound um, actually is used oftentimes in the Greek literature for speaking about physical health. That's the word for it, to be healthy. Who doesn't want to be healthy? Who doesn't want that for our bodies to work the way they should? One of the hard characteristics of aging 
is that our bodies start to malfunction, start to become less and less healthy. Lack of health bothers us. That's why we seek medical help to address the sickness. And if that's the case for our physical bodies, it is the same spiritually in the life of a church. Churches can be affected by spiritual sickness. And what is worse about spiritual sickness is that we often don't feel its pain. The triggers of pain against spiritual sickness don't work as clearly as they do for our physical bodies. Unless we actually know what spiritual health is, we can very easily be swayed to the sides, to the ditches, of, and not realize that we might be in a, in a congregation that's actually spiritually sick. I hear from members, I hear from other Christians that uh, they may have been part of churches in the past where they didn't know much about, didn't think much about what was going on in the life of the church until they actually were exposed to spiritual health in the life of the church. And then they realized how unhealthy they were in previous experiences. That's the hard part about spiritual unhealth, that you don't pick up on it unless you have a good picture of what spiritual health is about. The aim of rebuking Christians, even sharply, is to promote health in their faith, to encourage them to have faith that is free from error. This is, this is the meaning of the phrase sound in the faith. It means healthy in the faith or with no error in the faith. Friends, rebuking is never pleasant. It's never fun. One of the hardest things I have to do as a pastor is when I have to rebuke someone, when I have to correct someone. But it's good for us to, to experience it because of what it produces in us. It can expose our errors. We may have a wrong view of God that must be corrected. We might have a wrong view of our sin that must be for, for, uh, pr uh, corrected. We might have a wrong view of our freedom that must be corrected. We might have a wrong view of what it means to, to be a Christian that must be corrected. Friends, do you treasure when people have the courage to rebuke you? You realize that when someone actually engages in rebuking someone else, it takes courage for them to really do it. Do you treasure people who have the courage to rebuke you? Or do you turn your back to people to do so? Friends, be aware of churches that proud themselves of being only about accepting others and not rebuking. When we de deprive ourselves of such godly counsel, even such as rebuke, we put the health of our faith at risk. Finally, being sound in the faith produces purity of life. Healthy faith, a faith that is not corrupted by the distortions of truth, produces in us purity. When we embrace the sound truth of God and accept it in our hearts, God's Spirit uses that truth to purify us, to conform us to His standard, to bring us from what we thought was good and acceptable even in God's sight, to what truly is good and acceptable in God's sight. In verses 15 and 16, Paul gives us both a promise. That's both a promise and a warning. The, and here's a comparison between those who are pure and those who are impure or defiled. In, in verses 15 and 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. Listen to that. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Friend, if, if you're not a Christian, I want you to re realize and recognize that we are declared impure and defiled by God because of our sin. We're actually born with that stain. We become pure. We can become pure of our guilt of sin, of our stained conscience by turning to God, by turning away from our ignorance of God, by turning away from our insubordination to God, from our rebellious disobedience to God. We turn away from that and rely on Jesus to be the only means by which we can be restored back to God. And when we repent of our sin and turn and trust in Jesus for our salvation to make us right with God, God uses that by His Spirit to cleanse our hearts, our minds, our consciences. So we start realizing that that which we left as acceptable is no longer acceptable. The things we thought were okay are no longer okay. Why? Because now our, our conscience is being cleansed by the Spirit of God as we see the Word of God. Friend, if you have not turned to God by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus to be saved and to be made right with God, I encourage you, respond today so that you may be made pure in God's eyes so that your heart may be made pure in His sight. Well, friends, when we ask God to save us, He does more than just give us an entrance into heaven. He does something here and now. He purifies us. For those of us who have responded to the truth of the gospel, we know that sin continues to lure in us. Uh, to, to stay in us, to lure us, to entice us. And we often fail into it, but we don't stay there. So the desire to run back to God even after we have failed, the desire to live back in His light, the desire to get back to the path of purity, these things characterize Christians. That's why the Bible can call Christians the pure, even though we still struggle with impurity, even though we still fall into acts of impurity occasionally, but we are people who are committed to get back on the path of purity. We're people who love to, to walk in that path of purity. Why? Because God has cleansed our conscience, because God has given us a new cleansed heart. Oh, friends, realize that sin not only brings us the guilt of God, the, the punishment of God, but sin also stains us and defiles us, and we need God's cleansing to free us of that. When Jesus came and challenged the people of Israel, in the Old Testament, God had this big category of, of the pure and the unpure, the, the clean and the unclean. If you read the Old Testament, you'll bump into these laws. They're called purity laws. And, and, and sometimes it's even interesting to see the kind of things that would make someone unclean. Well, all of that was to, to bring the people of Israel to recognize that purity is a big deal to God. 
purity is a big deal to God. When Jesus came around, he helped the Jewish leaders understand that the true source of defilement, of stain, being stained, is not the things of the outside. Jesus, at one point in Mark, in Mark 7, he spoke about the fact that it's not the external things that make us impure. We have something inside us that is impure, and from that come all things that are impure. Our hearts have been corrupted. The source of defilement is inside of us. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do you obtain this purity of heart? By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. And when we do that, He cleanses us. Friends, if you've not done that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service uh, so that before you leave this place, you can walk away from here not only with, with a religious experience, not just with an encouragement or not even just with a rebuke, but you may walk away from this place with a heart that has been cleansed by the Spirit of God. For those who are defiled and those who refuse to believe in Jesus, um, oh, friends, do you see how Paul brings those two together? To be defiled is to be un unbelieving. To the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, who are these people? Look at, more, at more six, verse 16. The defiled and unbelieving. It's not the irreligious people. The defiled and the unbelieving are not the people who refuse to go to church. The defiled and unbelieving are not the people who refuse to say, oh, I have nothing to do with God. Paul is speaking here about people who profess to know God. And yet, they are defiled and unbelieving. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Friends, the false teachers that were going on in Paul's day in the, in the island of Crete might be different than the false teachers that are going on today. The details of the, of the error is different. May I spot out for you one error that we in particular are susceptible here in the South, especially in the, in the southern states that is not as prevalent in the northern states of the United States? It's nominal Christianity. Meaning, people who profess to know God, but it's only a profession of their mouth. And we know from the Bible that merely professing to be a Christian or merely professing to know God is not the same thing as actually being one, as actually being a Christian. A lot more has to go in our conversion to Christ than just proclaim Christ with our mouths. And there are so many today, especially in, in Texas uh, and other southern states, that are satisfied with a superficial profession of faith. This particular error is called nominal Christianity, meaning Christians who are Christians in name only. They're not true Christians. They just profess, put on the label. Friends, how do you know? How do you spot that out? How do you know someone has fallen in that error? Deep down, such people have never submitted to God. They don't mind accepting Jesus in their hearts, but they're not willing to submit to God. They're insubordinate. They're not willing to obey God. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as Jesus does it their way. 
I've done it my way, as one song says it. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as it's their way. Friends, the heart of the matter of that is a heart that has never been broken and surrendered to Christ. So it's one of the errors we, have to, we face today. And I know sometimes we don't like to talk about it. We would like to believe that everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Reality is that even though we would like to, be, to believe that way, it's not that way. More so, Paul calls these people as, as defiled and unbelieving. Yes, they claim to know God, but their minds and their consciences is defiled. Friends, one of the benefits of the gospel in our lives is that when we truly embrace God, our consciences, our minds become cleansed. The Holy Spirit cleanses us, and we start embracing the truth of God, the standard of God, the ways of God as good for us. Now, I'm not saying that, that it's some, it's, sometimes it's not a struggle to do so, uh, because our fleshly nature will oftentimes push back. But overall, there is a new disposition in the people of God, in the, those who are converted to Christ, those who are born again, a new disposition that embraces God because we have been cleansed by Him so that Bible declares us the pure. Even though we're still struggling with these things, we pursue a path of purity joyfully, um, willingly, gratefully for the sake of God. Friends, we considered the following points today about com confronting error. Expose those who teach error. Act to stop the promotion of error. Silence those who promote error and rebuke those who listen to error. Embrace the purpose of rebuking error. It is for the health of our faith. Then a healthy faith produces in us a purity of life. And I'll close with a final verse that Paul gives in the book of Romans. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And I want to say, like the Cretans have been. Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who equips your people to know and discern when the truth that you have revealed to us is being corrupted, when we might be lured into error, and you give us mechanisms, you give us uh, solutions, you give us paths, steps we can take, steps we can do to prevent ourselves from that, and steps we can do to uh, be restored out of it when we fall into it. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a congregation to know how to protect the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word, in its faithfulness, in its fullness, to protect it well against error. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to be a beacon, uh, to be a place where the purity of of your kingdom is reflected through the purity of the people of, your, of this congregation. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.